Hey everybody, this is Scott, and this marks the closest I've recorded something to our release ever. It's about 6.33 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Friday, the night that the show's going out, and I'm just popping this in in front of our cold open because we are having some problems with our existing website. It's under a hacking attack, which we mentioned on our social media platforms, but if you've been trying to go to the website, you might have noticed that it's down. It's intermittent, and we're doing our best to post our page that goes along with this episode that has all the pictures and links and everything, but it might not work. However, that's not a big deal because our brand new Squarespace website is launching next week with next week's episode, and you're going to hear about that tonight. But in the meanwhile, we didn't want that to hold the show up. And uh, you might also be able to tell that I'm a little bit sick. We didn't want that to hold the show up either. The show must go on. So what you're going to find out is the show is going up tonight. If you can't get to the website, don't worry about it. Our new website is going to roll out towards the end of next week, and we will have a full page to support this episode as well as next week's episode. Thank you so much for your patience. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported in part by Squarespace, Blue Apron, ZipRecruiter, and The Great Courses Plus. And we're back for the first time. Wait, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we're, we're running out of ways to make that and we're back thing work. <laughs> have, have you noticed I try and say it a different way each time? How did that become a thing anyway? I'm not sure. Like any good legend, its origins are shrouded in mystery. Again, it's not a legend. Two things, as you've no doubt already noticed, I've got a cold. I was really hoping it was going to make my voice seem more like Forrest's, but no such luck. Instead, I sound more like I'm going through puberty. Well, I was born this way, man. You, you just can't get sick and it magically happens. Well, next week we're going to be announcing the winner of Kevin Pollock's contest to pick a new identity for the Count of St. Germain, which, which is him, that after he gets tired of being Kevin Pollock. We've rounded up all of the suggestions, although there are still a few trickling in, and we've narrowed it down to a top ten list from which Mr. Pollock is going to pick his winner. So tune in next week for that. All right, that's that. Let's get back to it. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It was classified from the very start as decisive for the war, and supposedly the most secret research project carried out during the entire war in Germany. Igor Witkowski, journalist, historian, researcher on the Nazi Bell's role in World War II. Join us tonight as we take a look at Die Glocke, a mysteriously powerful experiment from World War II known as the Nazi Bell that is missing to this day. Before we get started tonight, we wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about some of our recent episodes. When we set out to do Astonishing Legends, our goal was to cover something interesting with every show. Not something interesting that is always a UFO story, or always a Bigfoot story, or always a historical mystery, but just something that's interesting or otherwise unexplained. There's no way we can do that without occasionally posting a show or an interview that might be outside of your personal wheelhouse. We understand that's going to happen, and we hope you'll stay with us if a topic pops up in our feed that doesn't suit you, because that's our format, and frankly, it's always going to be the way we choose topics. In fact, as Forrest says, we don't choose the topics, they choose us. Whatever we cover, though, you can generally bet you're going to get more background and context on that topic from us than anywhere else. We love getting emails that say, I don't believe in Bigfoot, but I really enjoyed the Kidnapped by Bigfoot episode. Or I don't believe in ghosts, but the Sludge Entity and Shadow People episodes really freaked me out. That said, our show has changed since we started, mostly because when we started, we had virtually no idea what we were doing, and frankly, with only a couple of years under our belts, when it comes to being broadcasters, we're well aware that we're still quite new at it. We learn something from every show, 
and we always try to take it forward with us. One thing that we recently learned about is why you hear something similar to the following statement on any show that features a guest. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are solely their own. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Scott Philbrook, Forrest Burgess, the Astonishing Legends staff, and or any other contributors to the show. Now, I've heard something similar to that statement a million times, but I never really thought about what it meant until we started doing more interviews. What does it mean? It means that if we have a guest on the show, they get to say what they want. And just because we recorded it and shared it with you, that doesn't mean we agree, disagree, or necessarily endorse anything they're saying. It just means we thought that they had something interesting to say and that you might enjoy hearing it, even if you don't agree with all of it. That disclaimer allows us to present full interviews with people who are working in fields that are, as you know if you listen to our show, outside the mainstream. Because we're a podcast, and an independent one at that, we have the freedom to share as much of an interview as we want, more than a TV show or a radio show. We think it's important to let you hear what these people are really like, what they think and believe, because in nearly every other platform that you get your media fix, it's spoon-fed to you. Sound bites are created. Segments are manipulated to convey what the people publishing them want them to convey. No more, no less. Do we do that too? Yeah, sure, a little bit. But what we really like to do with an interview that we feel very few others are doing is introduce you to the real person, let you get to know what their entire position is, not just the part of it that fits perfectly into the framework of whatever episode we're featuring them in, and also not just the part of them that we arbitrarily decide might be too out there for a subset of our listeners. We don't want to take our guests out of context. We want to leave them in context. After all, listening to Forrest and I do the show is like sitting down with us and having a candid conversation. And that's how we want our interviews to be, too. The fact that we work this way shouldn't be a surprise to you. It's the same approach we take when presenting a legend or a story. We try to cover all of the angles. And if they don't fit neatly into a three-act structure, we don't always try to force them into one. Because when you hear a story rooted in what someone maintains as an actual event told that way, you're not always hearing the whole story. You're hearing a manipulated version of it. That's why the book is always better than the movie. We want to be the book in that metaphor. We're a stream of consciousness show, and yes, that's a bit of an experiment, but overall it seems to be working well so far. What we want you to be able to do after we've covered something is say, I've heard everything there is to hear about this, and if I haven't, I know where to find more. What we're doing with a lot of our interviews is contacting someone who's told a story, especially if it's a famous one, hundreds of times, and asking them to make time to sit down on the phone and tell it one more time to us and our listeners. We're not paying them, and many times they have nothing to gain directly from it. They're doing us a favor. So when you're listening to Astonishing Legends and you hear an interview with someone who's saying something you can't latch onto, just remember that when that show or interview is over, whether you're aligned with the interviewee or not, you now know who they are and what they believe, and you can formulate your own opinion and make a strong case in a debate for why you do or don't think they should be taken seriously. And that's part of our mission. We know you guys are smart. We know you can make up your own mind about what to take or leave from an interview. The only thing we might want to remind you of is people are multidimensional. Disagreeing with them on one topic does not mean that everything they've said should be disregarded. With the help of the ARC, we've done a lot of research for this show and in the years leading up to it. And there's one thing that is fairly consistent about the overwhelming majority of witnesses to an unexplained event, and it's something Forrest has even pointed out on the show before. People don't believe in something until it happens to them. I love this statement because nothing will turn your belief system on its ear like personally witnessing something that you know you cannot rationally explain to your peers. 
There's an American idiom that, when reversed, sums this idea up perfectly for me. I'll see it when I believe it. Opening your mind up to new ideas that you might normally refuse to consider can take you down a path that was previously unavailable to you. Because even though that new idea was right in front of you, you refuse to see it. So whether you're a rocket scientist, physicist, artist, musician, or a security guard on the night shift, all we ask is that when you listen to our show, you remember these words spoken by noted space historian and journalist Jim Oberg. Keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are solely their own. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Scott Philbrook, Forrest Burgess, the Astonishing Legend staff, and or any other contributors to the show. Okay, Forrest, do you know what an Einstein-Rosen bridge is? Yeah, it's a battle simulation exercise like in Star Trek. You know, the Kobayashi Maru. Um, no. <laughs> it's, it would have been, it's not? <laughs> oh. I'm going to bet you're being funny because oh, I, I think okay. you probably do know what it is. It's a wormhole. Well, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So one of my favorite physicists, Michio Kaku, says they take those very seriously. And that's the reason we're bringing it up. We thought it was a good way to lead into this Nazi Bell episode because we want people to understand there's been a lot of speculation about what the bell does, and we're going to get into all of that. But some of the speculation about what it might have done or what kind of development it represented has been discounted because it's so fantastical and far out. The reality is that mathematically, wormholes have been shown to be completely plausible as existing, yes. and they've been extrapolated mathematically from Einstein's general theory of relativity, which he published in 1915, right. by the way, a long time right. ago. Yeah, it's theoretical physics, but like I said, it works on the math part of it, which to our logic, if it works out in the math, then it should be possible. Right. Although the important thing to note about the general theory of relativity is that it is at odds with quantum mechanics and quantum physics. They don't play together. When you talk about the grand unified theory of the paranormal, that's actually <laughs> well, stolen from a grand unified theory that they're trying to yes, <laughs> get to explain yeah. everything on the quantum level and the big level. No, that I, that I did know, of yeah. course, and that's where it's taken from. But we talked about this before in a previous episode, but the grand unified theory of everything must account for all the forces. So the problem is that gravity... It can be mathematically predicted, but in some sense it doesn't seem to exist, but we know it's there. And time, it does not explain time. So if it doesn't explain everything, it's not a grand unified theory of everything. Here's another thing about the general theory of relativity. And Tess just blogged about this on January 8th of this year. It was considered the biggest scientific breakthrough of 2016, if not one of the biggest in quite a while. And that is the proof of the existence of gravitational waves, which his theory posited. But there was no proof of them up until last year, which is pretty amazing when you consider he published the theory in 1915. And she actually said in this blog entry, Einstein's theory of general relativity can be tested more thoroughly now. So the reason I'm pointing this out and the reason that we're starting this show this way is because we wanted to make it clear that even the idea of a wormhole that seems really exotic and far out and, oh, that's Star Trek stuff or Star Wars or, <laughs> right. or Interstellar. Yeah. The point is that it is an idea that is rooted in science, and that's an important thing to consider. Yeah. And it's also important to consider that it's not entirely implausible that somebody might have gotten a clue about that a long time before now. During the uh, scientific age, the times of Faraday and all that, you go try an experiment and something strange would happen. Yeah. You don't need the math and the theories and the hypotheses before that to make it real. The thing's already existing. Are you following me here? Yeah. I believe it was Faraday. He realized that if you compress gas into a tube, he broke it on accident. It blew up in his face, nearly blinded him because it's flying glass. 
But what he noticed from this is that when you compress gas and you let it expand, it gets cool. And so what does that tell you? That's the basis for modern refrigeration. You have a right. compressor and you're, we're using Freon now, and you compress that. When you let that expand again or let it out, it gets colder. So that's- Really? That's how that works? I believe so, yes. Wow. Yeah, you can, you're free to, again, I love talking off the top of my head no, here. No, but so I people like can it. write in. I like to believe you, me. whether I can back it up I know, because I, I make it, uh, <laughs> I make the, the baloney sound uh, delicious, don't I? Yeah. So he couldn't do the math so much, but he knew the experiments. He kind of had an idea of what to try, and he wasn't taken seriously during his time because he couldn't get up on the chalkboard and do the math. Neil deGrasse Tyson, when he was the host of Cosmos, this came up again, and they profiled this. There was a physicist who came after him who really liked what he'd done and went back and proved the math. And it took him a long time, but he came up with a huge volume and said, there you go, because he wasn't classically trained in physics and, and mathematics. He just knew like, well, maybe if you try this, this will happen. He was classically trained in thinking outside the box. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's where the great breakthroughs happen. You got to get out there. And the math is following the actual happening. So again, because you think that this isn't proven, we don't have a machine that makes wormholes, doesn't mean they don't exist. And if you follow the line of thinking with the multiverse and Brian Greene and string theory... Michio Kaku and those guys, they take it very seriously because the idea is that if our universe is just one bubble and maybe there's an infinite number of bubbles and we live in the skin of the bubble and they touch each other, then it's a short hop through a tube into the next universe. Right. Possibly, which right. is another reality, another existence. Here's the idea that you can think about it in three-dimensionally with our tiny human brains that we can wrap our heads around. You live in a bubble, we're on the skin, and then if you poke a hole into the next bubble, well, now you're into another universe. Right. And that's the multiverse. That's not very well explained, but that's, no, that's but, what the idea is. And here's the thing about wormholes. You can't necessarily go through them because they are black holes. Yeah. And when you try to go through a black hole, according to one article I read on LifeScience.com, you turn into something similar to what comes out of a tube of toothpaste, well, which yeah, can because, be very hard to recover from. Well, no, again, <laughs> you can't put it back in, as they say. But these are extreme physics, you could say, or extreme happenings, because you have something the size of a massive star collapsing into something that's maybe the size of a basketball or smaller. Just wrap your head around that. So they are so heavy and dense. They rip a hole in the space-time fabric. And there's other ideas, too. Are there white holes? If you go through and manage to live through it, and Neil deGrasse Tyson has a great explanation of what would happen to you maybe physically yeah. when you went through, like your body and your molecules maybe stretching out, I think, yes. as you went through it. Or you could watch the Disney movie, The Black Hole, which would, as a kid, I had that great question. Maximilian Show. Yeah, and the robot and all that. So the idea, though, is if you can go through one, what happens? Is it possible? But you're about to explain how there's one well, way you might be able to go through one. Yeah, the edge of of it, which is called the event horizon, is called that partially because it's a point of no return. You cannot yeah. come back from that, but you also cannot survive it. There's a theory, apparently, and I read about this in a paper that I found online written by a guy named Adam Getchell for a physics class, but it seemed to be a pretty Im impressive paper. Yeah. <laughs> and it, what can I say about it? But it was published in 2003, and he, he was talking about this theory that suggested that you could banish the event horizon. This wasn't his idea. He was reporting on it. But by using what was called, I should say, exotic matter. Yeah. And exotic matter is defined as matter that has a negative mass energy density. I didn't really understand what that meant, so I had to look it up. The closest thing I could find was a description of the gravitational field, because that's an example of a field with a negative energy density, which makes sense. Now, the idea of exotic matter is speculative, 
but plausible, apparently. Although it violates some energy conditions, that same paper I mentioned a minute ago goes on to say, quote, there is nothing fundamental in physics which prevents the existence of exotic matter. It further says, considering quantum field theory, general relativity, and topology, we have found that exotic matter is not ruled out by energy conditions. Our website's been acting a little strange lately, hasn't it? Yeah, I think the Russians have hacked it. (laughs) Why do you say that? Well, it's been down more than it's been up the past few weeks, and I just found out that the platform we use was on the receiving end of a large-scale hack that keeps knocking its feet out from under it. Uh, It wasn't exactly stable prior to that, and we've grown a lot since we started, so I think it's time for us to make our next move. You're absolutely right, man. The bottom line is we're growing both as a show and a business, and it is time for us to make our next move or make our next website. And frankly, I want this one to look more elegant, be easy to navigate, and even more importantly, have support we can count on so that if something does come up or we have a question, our listeners won't miss a thing because we can get it sorted out quickly. That's why we decided to make our next move with Squarespace. They have beautiful award-winning designer templates that fit my fashion-forward sense of style. Your, your fashion-forward? The other thing that's awesome is that there's no more tinkering around on the back end. Our current setup has us constantly installing updates and patches and having to upgrade plugins, X, Y, and Z, or they won't work right anymore. With Squarespace, there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade Ever. And their award-winning customer service is available 24-7, which is great because there's nothing worse than trying to get support only to find out that customer service is in some other time zone and closed two hours before you even had a chance to ask your question. Speaking of all this, I'm excited to announce that our new Squarespace website goes up a week from today with our next episode. Excellent. Make your next move now. Refer to the promo code LEGENDS for 10% off any website subscription or domain purchase at squarespace.com. That promo code again is LEGENDS. Squarespace, make your next move. This is Emily Hedrick. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so before we go too far down the wormhole here, our point is that there are people with more degrees than a thermometer who will tell you that according to extrapolations from Einstein's general theory of relativity, you can build a traversable wormhole. Wow. I don't know. If we did build one, again, it's going to be like gray fires. I will stand on this side and watch you jump through it. (laughs) Well, you know, no, here's the scary part. But you can take two cans and a string, you know. So if you can try and wrap your head around this conceptually, you can imagine space or two places in space-time as two-dimensional sheets of paper. There's width and length. So what you're doing is you're connecting those by a little tube. But it's really kind of hard to imagine. It's like a point in space is not a ball or a sphere. It's a point. It's imaginary. Right. Yeah, it's a lot to kind of wrap your head around. Now, are you talking about exotic matter being connected to exotic mass? Yes. Which also might be another theoretical connection to dark matter. Right. By the way, if you look up the Wormhole Wikipedia page, there's a really amazing rendering, a picture of what one might look like, a Lorentzian traversable wormhole, right on the Wikipedia page. We're also including it with the posting for this show. Yeah. It's kind of a bubble mirror looking down a tube. If you think about a hole and you think about maybe other dimensional aspects of it, if you go back to Skinwalker Ranch, you saw somebody crawling through the hole coming out on our side. Yes. And so when you say you'll stand back and watch me have a go at Greyfriars, I'm not sure I want to crawl through that hole 
because you don't know what's going to be on the other side. Well, and the other thing about that whole at Skinwalker Ranch that still keeps me up at night and frankly <laughs> changed my yeah. disposition about all a lot of this stuff. It certainly did. Was the fact that from one end it was a tube and from the side it was one dimensional. But yeah. then when they came around to the end, they could see a shaft. So right. that's the I two pieces the of paper. That's what I'm saying. That's me. the two pieces yeah. of paper. Yes. Is the two different realities. It's like if you're not in the right spot, it looks like a tunnel versus it. it's just someone coming out of nowhere. We said this before in Skinwalker. If you're two dimensional, if you're a cardboard cutout standee in the lobby of a movie theater and you turn to the side, you suddenly disappear. But yeah. you really haven't. You're not now perceptible from that angle. What I did want to say also about that picture on the wormhole page on Wikipedia, which again we're sharing too, is that apparently it's been mathematically rendered. So it's uh -huh. accurate with the exception of how it treats light. Right. Because if they had done what you're supposed to do with light, it probably would look black. But well, if you take away yeah. that part of it, it shows the corner of a building and on the backside there's a beach in Australia or something. Yeah. But yeah, the it's interesting. The, the visual representation in Interstellar that you brought up earlier, the look of it was consulted with a physicist. And yes. they actually said, what would this look like? What does the math tell us? What would we see visually? if we were looking at it. So that's where you see light being bent around this black sphere. And of course, you're actually not looking at the black hole itself because it's absorbing light. So no light is being reflected into your eyeballs. Right. Yeah. The reason we're bringing all this up is to make the point there is a whole lot more that we don't know than we do know about the universe. And we wanted to remind our listeners that before we get to this interview that we have in the show tonight, there was a time when people were convinced the world was flat, and a time when they also thought the sun revolved around the earth. They thought that because that's what they could see, and it seemed obvious. People who questioned either one of those ideas were seen as crazy. I mean, can you imagine a meeting of today's modern-day skeptics back then debunking the idea of a round earth, <laughs> vehemently right. arguing, it can't possibly be round. Look out the window, Mr. Magoo, it's flat. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point because, of course, nowadays there is a flat earth society movement. And are these guys serious? I don't know. They're doing it for a laugh. You know, yeah. it's like we've got some spare time on our hands, so we're just going to do this as a goof. But as a kid, and my kid logic even I'm was, surprised they don't have a podcast because there's now 450,000 oh, podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sure there is one, but it's uh, it's two-dimensional. How can you find it? So <laughs> the idea, though, is that to me as a kid, it's like, okay, so even if you imagine a very, very large cosmic-sized flat piece of dirt, it's like, what's on the bottom? Is it just roots and dirt? Like, what's keeping that together on the bottom side? And yeah. can we go visit it? You Rebar. Know? Yeah, <laughs> that didn't make much sense. So to me, the opposite is true now, that it makes much more sense that we live on a big ball. It is spinning. But what you're saying is that you look up in the sky, well, obviously, dummy, look, the sun starts off in the east, goes over to the west, and it's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. It's all perspective. That's not what but we're The only perceiving. reason it does that, yeah. though, is because we're a coin tumbling through space. Uh, what do you mean? That's oh, why that? the sun rises and sets. It's still flat. Oh, just I a coin. see. Flipped, right. Someone well, flipped a coin. Well, then you're getting into uh, dark city territory yeah, here. Doesn't where, make yeah. sense. Well, anyway, the reason is we just want you to keep in mind that just because you haven't seen proof of something yourself, that doesn't mean it definitely doesn't exist. This might be a good case where you have a device or a procedure or a process where strange things are happening that you had not predicted. Byproducts of its operation. Exactly. So instead of having the math first and saying, well, I got the math, this should work, let's build the machine that'll do this, you have a device or components that are doing something that you cannot explain. I like how you pulled that all. See, you set this all up with that Faraday thing. Oh, did I? I yeah, didn't. I just did. just did that right now. Just I the, love yeah. that, though, because we may be talking tonight about something 
that that knew how to put it together but weren't sure what it was going to do when right. they turned it on. Exactly. Again, I might be totally full, you know. Not You're even, definitely full of it. I, yes, of course. <laughs> but we it didn't, both are. I just remember that was the story. There was compressed gas in a tube. It breaks open and blows up. And what you gain from that is that the effect is noticed even though you weren't planning on trying to experiment with that. You're just Let's see what happens if we do this. Tonight's story might be a case of we have a few ideas of what these components might do if you put this certain action to them, but you're going to get some surprises along the way. All right, so that brings us to Die Glocke, Mm. the Nazi bell. That's German for the bell. This device, again, a lot of people are going to say, well, there's no proof of it. It didn't exist. There's a lot of people who think it did, and they might have some very good reason for thinking at least something that looked like a giant bell did exist. Yes, and this does tie back to our previous episode, the Kecksburg crash. Yes, you see the line we're connecting here? In 2000, a journalist and author published a book called The Truth About the Wunderwaffe. This book was a guide to some of the high-technology weapons that Hitler's Secret Service was developing during World War II. In this book, the author, Igor Witkowski, revealed the existence of a weapon known as Die Glocke, or the bell, and has since become known as the Nazi bell. Now, like all good legends, and this device has become legendary, misinformation and speculation about its real purpose abound. Was it a time machine, a particle accelerator, a special centrifuge? Was it designed just to enrich uranium in some kind of new way? The simple fear of what it may be capable of has led people the world over into heated debates about whether or not it was even real. Like a lot of the topics we touch on, there are forums all across the internet where people are arguing the validity of any of the theories associated with it. All of the usual words are bandied about, pseudoscience, debunker, etc., and there's no shortage of websites that will tell you it's been solved, citing papers from the KGB, the Library of Congress, and other sources, some verified, others not. Hey, any one of those can be valid, and if we were serial, we might do 12 episodes on the Nazi bell and call it a year, but we're not. We're here to give you as much information as we can about it tonight in part one of our two-part series on it. Oh, nailing it down. So you can make your own decision about what you think it was or wasn't. And then if you want to know more, you can do some digging. But what if there is something to this story? Obvious red herrings and disinformation aside, and boy, let me tell you something, I am excited about the disinformation associated not only with the bell itself, Mm. but some that we've heard about the chemicals that might have been used to make it work, that sort of thing. There's going to be a lot of fun talking about that. But what if there really is more to this story? For our money, you can't really say definitively what it was or wasn't until you find one and plug it in. And see what happens when you turn it on. Again, I'm going to watch from a distance through the binoculars. <laughs> well, it's a very thick, leaded uh, From a glass, distance. Yeah. Mr. Vitkowski thinks there's more to the story, and he makes a good case for it. And we'd like to introduce you to him. Igor Vitkowski is a military journalist living and working in Poland. He has written a multitude of professional articles and over 50 books on military technology and the history of World War II. He is an expert in high-technology armament development, particularly as it pertains to the history of the Third Reich. Over the past several decades, he has acquired access to documentation on those projects that researchers were unaware of until he introduced them to the world. So when it came time for us to do a show on the Nazi bell, Igor Vitkowski was one of only a small handful of experts in the world on the topic, and we reached out to him since he is often cited as the first journalist to bring its existence to light. 
We're very fortunate to have had him say yes to an interview via Skype from his home in Poland a few days ago. A quick reminder, this was before I got sick, so enjoy my normal voice. <laughs> I enjoy both of them. My name is Igor. You would spell it Witkowski, but I spell it Witkowski. I'm uh, writing books about, generally speaking, about the history of our civilization. But for uh, quite a long time, I was concentrating on the scientific and technologic developments in the during the Second World War and uh, on the Third Reich in particular. I was an editor-in-chief of two military magazines, and after that, I started to write books about such things, and uh, I have spent... Uh, quite a lot of time in various archives, uh, trying to get to various documents, information, and so on. I'm working on it uh, for over 20 years now. And you uh, published a book which definitely started a lot of interest in the Nazi bell, which is what I wanted to talk to you about some tonight. But you published a book called The Truth About the Wunderwaffe in 2000. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Can you tell our listeners what the Wunderwaffe is exactly? I mean, I was writing about various special projects, so to speak, but uh, one story attracted my attention the most. It was the story of the so-called Bell, the uh, Glocke in German. It was a strange device that was developed during the Second World War by the Germans. And uh, the story started in such a way that I have been contacted by an intelligence officer. Uh, I live in Poland. He has showed me some uh, interrogation protocols of a German officer captured in 1947, uh, shortly after the war in, in Germany. It described the, the bell. It was a fragmentary description because he wasn't any part of, uh, of the scientific team. He didn't have knowledge, not the understanding. But uh, it contained, nevertheless, some uh, telling clues and such a, a terms uh, that uh, I would say were shocking for anybody who had any idea about scientific activity during the Second World War, because it sounded to me like something out of this world, because uh, they themselves, I mean the Germans, were astounded and shocked and uh, in many cases surprised by uh, what they saw as the uh, effects of this device's operation. My main focus were two things. One was to substantiate the existence of such a research project and such a device, and uh, I pretty much succeeded in this because I have uh, obtained various documents describing such activity. But another one was to ascertain what it was generally, how it worked, uh, and what was the purpose of such a strange device. So I guess that I would have to describe the bell. Here's what I'm curious about. The intelligence officer who reached out to you, had you already discovered existence of the bell prior to that, and that's what caused him to reach out to you, or was he the first that you had heard of it? I had no idea previously about it, about anything similar. Only later uh, I have found out that there were some pieces of information referring to the bell, already existing in various sources. Uh, apparently, my informer didn't have any idea about it as well. But it wasn't the only source of information, uh, as it has turned out in the matter of time, but uh, it wasn't the only 
source mentioning about such a device. So he had reached out to you because he realized you were already doing research into the Wunderwaffe, and he said, I have some paperwork. He wasn't even sure what was in it, but it might be of interest to you. He was uh, puzzled by what he got. Okay. But the problem was such that the intelligence service, or the generally these people, on several occasions, first one was shortly after the war, then it was, it was in the 60s, then uh, the third attempt was uh, at the time when he contacted me. They were trying to find out what it was generally, because uh, the interrogation protocols uh, referred to a German officer who was taking part in, the, in evacuations of, of various things or goods. Uh, in the final months of the war, and such a knowledge would have been useful for the, for them, I mean for the intelligence service, because uh, I didn't hear it, uh, you know, verbatim. But uh, my impression was such that uh, they wanted to employ me because um, unraveling this mystery would uh, make easier for them to to get to the people involved and to follow some threads uh, that they couldn't follow, like leading to specific persons in, in South America, Germans, and, uh, and so on. But because uh, the same evacuation unit that was evacuating the bell was also uh, involved in other things that they were more interested in. So uh, that was a reason, uh, I guess, for them to contact me. But I don't know what use they, they eventually made of my knowledge, and I'm not sure. All right, I just wanted to come in real quick and clarify a couple of things about what Igor said here. One of them I wanted to talk about was how he came by the information, because I myself was a little confused by it at first. Right. Why was he doing research or did they come to him? And the reality is they came to him. He explains that, but just for people that might have a little difficulty following his Polish accent, sure. which I think he speaks pretty clearly, but I just want to clarify because yeah. we don't have the opportunity to do subtitles, although we will <laughs> do a transcription of this show. Right, and we realize a lot of you are actually working while you're listening to this, in your metal shop in, yeah. <laughs> in, in, the, in the Netherlands or wherever you are. Yes, uh, oh, and by yeah. the way, hello to our insomniacs. We're so glad we can help yeah. you get to sleep. <laughs> you conked out an hour ago, I'm sure, but we're very pleased. But we realize that, yes, you're doing other things while you're listening, and hearing them clearly might be a problem. Plus, these are kind of big ideas in this one, so yeah. uh, it might be a little hard to follow. So we'll try and clarify that as we go. But you have to realize, with this story, Nick Cook, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell, Stevens, all these authors are going mostly by Igor here. Yeah. Because he was he the was... guy who first dug this up. And as you just said, the Polish intelligence service, or at least one member of it, wanted to contact him to see if he knew anything about this. Right. And apparently the reason that they wanted to do that was because they were interested in tracking things that were packed up and shipped away at the end of the war that have been hard to find. Mm. Not just things, also people. People, artifacts, things of great value, the Nazi train. We've we've been hearing about quite a bit from the news and our listeners, like, hey, you should cover that. And of course, they think they found a railroad car that's buried, but it turned out to be empty. I think there was nothing in it. Yeah. That was the whole vibe of the Nazis that they're working on something. What are they working on in there? Where are they hidden this thing? Where have they taken the stolen loot? Yeah. That's actually a good setup is that right. they were doing that. These intelligence officers knew that 
Igor was an expert on this stuff. They wanted him to get to the bottom of some of these interrogations. Yes, they were curious about the actual device being mentioned, but more they thought it could help them find a whole lot of other stuff. It was just a, a means to an end. Well, th think about it. They don't have the time themselves to go down these rabbit holes. So why not ask a guy who is a trained journalist, a military journalist, who can take the time to research this because we think he's going to find it interesting too. So he'll do this. That's kind of the setup. Now, the people are going to say like, well, they're just out to make a quick buck and a big buck off of these crazy ideas that they're drafting out of whole cloth here. It's like, well, one thing I can tell you, if you've ever met an author who's not Dan Brown or a major seller, nobody's getting real rich off this stuff. So yes, people are selling books and writing books to make a living or, or supplement their other writing aspirations and living. But no one's writing giant blockbusters off this myth. He's going on a kernel of truth that he's seen himself. That's right. Before we get back to his interview, I did want to mention some information that we found regarding cooperation of these interrogation papers. Because with him, what had happened was he wasn't allowed to take them or photograph them or copy them. He had to go and he was allowed to sit with them. He could take notes. And take notes. Yeah. And that's what he did. But he was not able to produce them or reproduce them, which he talks about, whether or not he could show them to other people, which was frustrating for him too, because he knew people weren't going to believe him. Right. Before we go back to Igor, I did want to cite this series of witnesses that I took off of a website that has an amazing link, which we put in our show notes, called Nazi Bell Uncovered. And the title of this article is Nazi Bell Behind the Myth. And it was written by a gentleman named Simon Gunson. And he apparently is a private pilot who also founded a Facebook group dedicated to trying to find out what happened with MH370. So we might be wanting to talk to him. If you hear this, Simon, we'll be reaching out to you. There was a section on his page where he talks about other witnesses who corroborated the presence of the Nazi bell during World War II. And his list has seven people on it. I just wanted to read this real quick so that everyone can understand that these seven names are outside evidence of the existence of the bell in addition to the information that Witkowski was able to recover from the interrogation. Number one, SS Lieutenant General Jakob Sporenberg, who was the police chief of occupied Poland. SS Hopsturmfuhrer Rudolf Schuster from the interrogation report, which Witkowski mentions Schuster, at Berlin Document Center about evacuation of the bell by air in 1945. Dr. Wilhelm Voss, chief executive of Skoda Works, Czechoslovakia. That information was given to Tom Agustin. Soviet plasma scientist G.N. Froloff, in 1983 interview referred to Professor Baron Manfred von Arden as a first-hand witness, railway employee from Opel, Joachim Ibram, Dr. Otto Cerny gave information regarding the bell whilst working at NASA. He recounted that information to Greg Rowe. And number seven, the Argentine Economic Ministry Report, which was declassified in 1993, which refers to the bell being unloaded in Argentina from a multi-engined German aircraft in May of 1945. Now that ties in with Dr. Joseph P. Farrell's idea about the Junkers 390, giant six-engined aircraft that could fly nonstop. There's some rumors that it, it flew nonstop from France, Bordeaux, France, all the way to South America. There you go. And big enough to haul this thing. All right, so we're going to come back to that and the implications of that a little bit later on. But right now, I want to get back to our interview with Mr. Witkowski. The very next question that I asked him was whether or not he was still in touch with the Polish intelligence officer who had given him the information. 
Are you still in touch with him? Is he still alive? Yes, he is alive, but he will not tell you anything because uh, he wasn't supposed to do what he did. I mean, contacting me. It was just his initiative. I, uh, that's how, how I understand it. I'm not sure of it either, but uh, generally he, he, he was very secret about it. He didn't want to appear in public and, uh, and say anything about it. I read, in, in, at least in the earlier days, when you first released this information that you had come across regarding the interrogation with, uh, I guess the, the officer's name was Sporenberg, is that correct? Rudolf Schuster. Oh, Schuster, okay. Yes, this was a, it was the first one. Later on, they have uh, gathered information from another source, but he didn't describe the, the bell itself. He could only tell something about evacuations as, as such, but not guys. Some people seem to have been critical, saying, well, how do we know that this officer that you first spoke to about the bell is a real person or that this information is corroborated? Have you since been able to find more corroborating information that people were able to verify about its existence? Uh, I have gathered several documents, just realizing that for me it was an easy situation as well because I, I couldn't, you know, refer to the, to the original source. So I started to look for documents and I have collected a lot of them. And uh, some, generally speaking, they confirmed that uh, the Germans were carrying out the research in, in this field, generally. And uh, when I got to the conclusion that the device was uh, kind of an anti-gravity generator, I have managed to recover also some documents confirming that there was such a project in, in Germany aimed at controlling gravity, artificially generated gravity and so on, in order to make a propulsion system and so on. Ideally for them, this was all about a new type of propulsion for aircraft that would give them the power to win the war because the propulsion would allow them to do things that current aircraft could never do. Yes, generally speaking, it was uh, it's just the explanation that uh, describes in the in the simplest way what was uh, observed during the experiments with this device because uh, there was a lot of descriptions of uh, of how the experiments were carried out, how the device looked like, what kind of energy it generated, what kind of effects on organisms, on various substances, materials it demonstrated. My impression is such that uh, referring to a theory of gravity is um, explaining uh, this phenomena in the best way. But apart from this, there was an interesting, you know, aspect of this research that uh, this research project was classified from the very start, in fact, from 1942 when it uh, came into existence. It was classified from the very start as uh, decisive for the war. And uh, supposedly it was the most secret research project carried out during the entire war in Germany. And another question which uh, emerged after getting to such an information was uh, what would be the, you know, the, the rationale behind such a classification as decisive for the war? What kind of effect it could bring from the point of view of resolving the war or of winning the war? How it could be won with such a device? And uh, I have a testimony of a, of a former prisoner from a concentration camp who copied the plans for the, for the Germans who, who worked on this. And he has said that they were essentially working on a kind of a strategic weapon. Applying such a hypothesis, it would uh, explain, I, I guess, the 
tremendous importance of such a technology because it would enable them to deliver, for example, various weapons, such as weapons of mass destruction, for example, to any point of the globe without uh, any risk of being shot down, etc. It seemed that uh, they were working on something larger than the bell itself, of which it was supposed to be just a part, but generally that they wanted to win the war with the use of such uh, global weapons with global range. There have been a lot of rumors about the functionality of the bell itself beyond just anti-gravity. Do you have any opinions on whether or not it might have been some kind of time machine or creating – some people have said that it possibly created wormholes, artificial wormholes – Do you have any opinion on things beyond just an anti-gravity propulsion system? I have no knowledge about it because from my point of view, it's just speculations because I have seen no basis for such claims. Probably it was, if it was generating gravity, anti-gravity, there would be some time-related effects, you know. But um, I just don't understand what the authors of such a theories really mean by saying that. I have seen no basis for such a theory. In terms of your education and background, was it difficult for you to wrap your mind around the physics associated with anti-gravity project? It certainly would be for me. I just am curious about when you started to learn more about how the bell supposedly operated. Was that a hard thing for you to grasp, or have you learned a fair amount since you started researching this project? It wasn't easy. It took quite a lot of years. But... uh, I did have some experience because I was analyzing various research projects. So I, ha- I had to had, have some knowledge about physics and such a things. So uh, it wasn't easy, but uh, several people helped me on the other hand. And uh, finally, I have managed to create some comprehensive description. I mean, explaining various things. Do you have any idea how it works or how it worked? It looked like a bell. But it was a ceramic cover, the shape of the bell. In fact, the main part of the bell was an axis, quite thick, some four, six inches in diameter. It was a kind of a pipe which housed some substance. I would not go into such a detail now. But around this axis were spinning during an experiment two kind of drum-like chambers in which there was a mercury there was a high voltage uh, electrical discharge inside these chambers, so it uh, ionized this mercury and created, accelerated it at the same time, and created two kind of a donut-shaped plasma vortices of a mercuric plasma. And it spinned at tremendous speed. It might have even been a significant portion of the speed of light because uh, such a vortex of, of mercuric plasma, it compresses itself. It, the uh, centrifugal force is neutralized, so uh, it may be accelerated to very high speeds. These vortices spinning in opposite directions, they created very strong magnetic fields. And it was the main source of various unwanted phenomena taking part in the observed around the bell. But these vortices were were different from anything that we know usually because they were magnetically closed systems. I mean, the, all the magnetic field lines were, were looped, closed totally. It was a very different kind of vortex. Like if I may make an analogy, for example, you have a smoke from a cigarette 
which sometimes creates a vortex spinning, spinning in some way, and it dissipates under the influence of the centrifugal force more or less quickly. But on the other hand, you may have a different kind of vortex which compresses itself. It's a, such a donut of the cigarette smoke. There are various kinds of the vortices, and uh, it was a kind of similar reality. These vortices were magnetically closed, as physicists may say, which meant that uh, from the point of view of a theory of gravity, they created a closed time-space bubbles. This phenomenon alone was a source of artificial negative gravity. That's how it works. Wow. The last question I wanted to ask you about, and for the sake of our listeners who probably will be looking at pictures after they hear this story, because I think a lot of our audience is not going to be familiar with it. What do you think about the flytrap and the discovery of the flytrap and how it might relate to the experiment? Some people were saying that the flytrap, which is a photograph is available, any, many photographs are available on the internet, is something that uh, resembles a scaffolding for a so-called cooling tower, such as uh, cooling towers associated with power plants. But it's impossible because in this case, there would have to be pipelines de- delivering water to this, which are missing. But on the other hand, what you can see out there are such underground ducts with high voltage cables getting to the very center of this fly truck. And it fits the description how the bell was tested, shortly speaking. It might have been a kind of a circular test rig, such as uh, test rigs for testing helicopters or other vertically uh, taking off and landing objects. It's pretty much the same pattern. We have an institution of uh, aviation institute in Warsaw, which has a quite identical test rig to this flight track of a very similar diameter even. It just looks like a test rig for experimenting with, with such a device like the bell or maybe with something else. But it's typical for vertically taking off and landing objects. Hey, have you seen some of the photos people post of their Blue Apron meals? Yeah, they're really pretty impressive looking. I know, some of them look like professional chef's dishes from a cookbook. That's because if you just follow Blue Apron's step-by-step recipe cards, pretty much anyone can make a restaurant-quality gourmet meal. That's another thing I like about Blue Apron. They provide these recipes on nice card stocks. You can always go back and make these meals again in the future. And since we go with the Blue Apron Culinary Team's recommendations, I don't really have to think about always having to wow the family with new dinner choices. I let them surprise me too, and everything I've made so far is a delicious surprise. But if you want more control over your menu, Blue Apron lets you choose from a variety of recipe options each week. And since there's no weekly commitment, you only get deliveries when you want them. So you get variety and flexibility. The variety is one of the best features for us because I'm sure like with every family, you get into a dinner rut where you have your family favorites, but you can't have those every night and we get tired of the old whipped together standbys. That's especially true for me since I'm one of those guys that can make a big batch of something and eat it for a whole week. But I don't do that so much anymore because now I have a fresh gourmet dinner most nights and then a gourmet lunch from the leftovers a couple of days later. There ain't many leftovers at our house because everything gets eaten, which as a dad, I love because I hate having to throw food out. So Blue Apron's a pretty good option for singles, couples, or families, and the price is right at less than $10 per person per meal. If you're curious to see what we're talking about, go check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com 
slash astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. Let's get back to the show. Can you tell our listeners, because we haven't really mentioned it yet, and of course you know, but where everyone believes and where you believe the bell was, and talk a little bit about that secret base and the area there, which I know you've been to because I saw you on Forbidden History and a few other programs taking mm-hmm. people for tours. Can you just describe a little bit about that region and, and what maybe the goal of that base was and where the bell most likely was developed? The Germans were building during the war various underground factories, underground research plants and various and, or depots in various parts of the, the Reich, around 800 of them uh, in total. But the first wave, so to speak, of uh, acquiring underground spaces was during the 1930s, before the war, when not just to protect these plants against air raids, but just to conceal armament efforts. And uh, this first wave from 1930s involved, for example, not building such underground facilities, but adopting existing ones, such as uh, mines or parts of mines that uh, were taken over by the state uh, or bankrupted. And uh, this facility dedicated to the Bell and to this entire project was from this first wave. And uh, the main part of it was a former mine, which was bankrupted in 1930s. And uh, the advantage of such a different approach, of this first approach to the underground factories was such that uh, the place is huge. It's uh, it was uh, estimated to be the underground space of the order of 20 million cubic meters. And I don't know how it would translate into cubic feet, but uh, it's uh, times 30. So uh, 600, for example, more or less uh, cubic feet underground. And they were adding various other facilities to this to this complex. So it's something like an underground city. In fact, and uh, it was located in the uh, then eastern part of Germany. Now it's Western Poland because the borders have shifted. But it's an unusual place because uh, presently there is no access to the underground part. But uh, what is on the surface is turning sufficiently to give uh, quite an uh, unusual, very unusual impression because uh, there is an infrastructure like. Uh, in the form of regular fortifications, such as the entire area area on the surface is divided into several three uh, internal security rings. And uh, these rings are divided by quite heavy bunkers, trenches for soldiers defending the security rings. So it's something bizarre because it doesn't have any equivalent anywhere in the world especially when one takes into account the fact that it was far from any existing or or, or possible front line. The front line has never reached this place. So uh, it's generally a valley in the mountains that was sealed off and uh, heavily defended, very heavily defended. 
and generally the infrastructure all this infra, all the infrastructure out there is very well developed because it wasn't any underground factory built in 1944 that never finished etc because it was pretty much finished before the war so it is quite an impressive place but uh, it's not the only one related to this research because there were also other research facilities equally unusual, equally going beyond any possible, any known pattern of keeping anything secret around in this part of Germany. But uh, they were also building, as I found out recently, an operational base for full-scale combat flying objects in the northern part of Norway, which is impressive. It's a place completely unknown in a desolated area, uninhabited in the far north of, of Norway, which uh, with such uh, concrete launch pads, or uh, I don't know how to how to call it because it doesn't resemble any anything built for rockets. It's something uh, stranger, <laughs> but it's an impressive uh, site and impressive place. And uh, I was starting obviously to wonder what would explain uh, investing such resources in the north of Norway. When it seems far from any potential target, but generally speaking, it's the shortest way to the United States. So it would explain, perhaps, I'm not sure of it, but it might have explained a plan to attack the United States. You said the underground parts of Doris are not accessible now? I mean, the main part, the former mine, is not accessible since the war, because all the access shafts elevator shafts were blocked by the Germans completely and uh, to such an extent that uh, it's beyond reach and, uh, anyway, because it would require a, a tremendous investment and, uh, and so on. I had read in some of our research that part of what they did there, which is horrific, is that they, when they realized that the base was going to be taken was that they sealed some of the concentration camp workers inside the shafts when they closed it all up. Do you think there's any truth to that? It seems likely because two things point to the truth in it. One is that there is no survivor who would be able to say what was going on underground, despite we, that we know that there was some work because there were barracks and such a subcamp for the prisoners for about 2,000 of them. So they did work there, but there is just no, no survivor. Another account is of a former prisoner who worked in the concentration camp, who has uh, testified after the war that uh, he was a a kind of writer in the chancellery of the camp, and he made everyday reports for the SS about the state of the workforce and so on, reported about the number of people killed and died and uh, living and so on. And uh, on one day, he he wasn't able to count 20,000 prisoners and he reported to an SS guy that there must be a mistake because uh, 20,000 people are missing. And they smiled, smiled according to him and told him that, no, it's a, we know about it. It's not a mistake. Oh, my gosh. You know, it was a rule. The, the Germans had such a kind of uh, rule that in the case of such a top secret research or generally top secret places or, or, or works, they had the name for such a people working in such places. In German, it's Geheimnisträger. It means a, a bearer of, uh, of secret, a secret bearer. 
it was something that implied that such a person can never leave such a place alive. Right. It was just a way for them to keep uh, various, uh, even large undertakings uh, completely secret because when the war ended and uh, the Western Allies, secret services has uh, have invaded various uh, facilities, places in, in Germany. To this day, they have a very clear idea about the fuzzy idea about the places that were located beyond the reach. But uh, I mean, uh, in the eastern part of Germany, which later on became the Soviet area of uh, occupation, this method was quite effective. And it was just the key for the SS to gain such great influence in Germany because they were able to carry out even large uh, projects or constructional projects, anything with their own workforce, with their own financing, without the need of reporting anything to other institutions. It just worked well, and uh, it was the reason why Kamler and the SS in general gained such influence in the final year of the war. Can you tell our listeners just briefly a little bit about Kamler and what his role might have been in this project? Hans Kamler was an SS general who effectively replaced the armament minister Speer from 1944 on because he has developed an SS economic empire which seemed to be much more effective than the, the civilian armament industry. Because, as I mentioned, the SS was able to maintain secrecy, had no restrictions as to access to workforce or uh, qualified uh, you know, personnel. And uh, after the plot against to, to assassinate Hitler in 1944, he just didn't trust the civilian institutions in general. So he has turned into the SS as, uh, as something that is uh, more reliable. And Kamler was a kind of a personification of this trend because he has become effectively the second person after Hitler in the final months of the war. What happened to him after the war? There are conflicting stories. I was unable to make any research on this because it's a very complex issue that I will have to dedicate uh, another 20 years <laughs> of my life to uh, trying to unravel it. But there was a researcher in Germany whose ambition of the lie of his life has become to unravel the mystery of Kamler, not just of his death, but who he was, what kind of uh, negotiations with the uh, Western powers he carried out, for example, and so on. What has happened to his capital's treasures and so on. And he has came to the conclusion that his name was Christian Knack. He came to the conclusion that Kamler did die shortly before the end of the of the war, but uh, he has unraveled also that he was negotiating with the United States generally about the conditions of the capitulation that uh, in exchange for not using their weapons of mass destruction, such as chemical ones, for example, which was uh, the worst arsenal of the Second World War, in my, in my view, in exchange for not using it, according to Christian Knack, they had a free hand in uh, evacuating the crucial resources in, in order to regain the leading position of Germany after the war, shortly after the war, which they did effectively. But as I mentioned, this guy has has come to the conclusion that Kamler did die, and he hasn't been evacuated nor captured. 
Right, because there's some people that believe that Kamler loaded up an airplane and fled to the U.S. with all his technology and went into some kind of witness protection program and continued to work for the U.S. government. I haven't seen any sign of it. I haven't seen any anything indicating that there was a, such a source of information. And uh, frankly saying that uh, it doesn't seem likely to me that the U.S. has gotten anything from this project uh, itself because... Uh, it was based on quite different ideas than Einstein's theory enabled or, or predicted. And I have seen nothing like emerging of similar ideas after the war in the United States. So it seems that uh, if the Americans would have captured uh, Kamler, he would have to say everything about what he knew. But apparently for Germans, it was uh, out of the question because this project had such an a tremendous potential it still has. Are you familiar with the Kecksburg incident in Pennsylvania, uh, the United States? Yes, I am. I'm not able to validate it. You know, I'm not sure if it was true. And uh, in my view, uh, the, the resemblance to the bell uh, of this flying object that supposedly crashed under is superficial. But I don't know. I just heard from other, from other sources about it, but uh, I don't know really if it was true. On that particular show, we interviewed the head of MUFON, which is the Mutual UFO Investigation Network, right, here in the United States, for yep. the Pennsylvania and several other states. And one of the things that he said in the course of his interview, which was interesting, was he had made a reference just briefly. We touched on the bell. We didn't talk about it a great deal because he said the same thing you did. Some people think that it might have been the bell or might have been related to it, but he wasn't sure. But he did say that he thought that it was possible that the Germans had reverse-engineered some technology or back-engineered some technology from a UFO crash in the Black Forest in 1936. And I'm wondering if you, especially in light of what you just said a few minutes ago, when you think about this technology being handed over to them, have you heard anything that might support that theory? I mean, or maybe it's just broad speculation, but it does seem and feel like otherworldly tech, does it not? I have never encountered any real source for this story, alleged crash in the, in the Black Forest. So it's hard to say anything for me about it. The story is very, I mean, the, how they understood where they were heading is a very complex story and how they came to the, how they developed certain ideas. I don't know, but I would be more tending to suspect that not just reproduce is something that they found because it would be very difficult to do such a thing if you have a technology superior to ours by perhaps thousands or millions of years. It would be quite unusual. I, I can imagine this. But it seems to me more likely that they just got a knowledge, you know, a message of uh, a description. It's easier for me to imagine reproducing such a technology. All right, so that they got the information they needed rather than retro-engineering it. I would be able to say something about it, but uh, it's such a complex story that I don't want even to start it because it would be an hour, another hour, you know. I would have to describe you a kind of a game for the future of uh, our future is, is at stake, a game played with the humanity for, for a long time. It's a very complex story, really, very bizarre. Well, would you consider coming back on the show at a future date and having that discussion? With pleasure, I can tell you, but uh, it's just, just a story from, from another world. I mean, not that I heard it from extraterrestrial source, but uh, just very different from what we are used to. 
one has to ask the question, how are we as humans are perceived by possible observers? The success of any business, whether you work in an office building or out of a spare room in your house, depends on hiring the right people for the job. That is so true, and it doesn't matter where you work or what type of work you do. Even if your business has salaried positions or uses part-time or freelance employees, the right people can mean success and growth, and the wrong people can sink it. And just hoping for good people isn't enough, and posting your job in one place isn't enough. To find the perfect hires, you need to post on all the top job sites, and ZipRecruiter lets you do just that. No matter what you do, you can't be spending all day trying to navigate all the job boards and social media platforms. You've got other work to do. So with a single click, ZipRecruiter.com lets you post your opening to over 200 job sites as well as social media networks like Facebook and Twitter. Another way ZipRecruiter is really efficient is that it finds candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. ZipRecruiter also helps you with that other time-consuming task, and that's how to organize all those responses once you get them. ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface lets you quickly screen candidates, rate them in your dashboard, and hire the right person fast. Try it out and see why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Because right now, Astonishing Legends listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com legends. That's ZipRecruiter.com legends. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com legends. Hey, Scott, did you see that we had someone write to us saying how they're really enjoying their Great Courses Plus subscription and it's especially helpful for their son and his schoolwork? You know what? I did see that, and it makes a really good point. It's not just great for adult education. It's also a great way for the whole family to learn. And the information from these fascinating video lectures is something you can trust because it's presented by award-winning experts in each subject. We think the Great Courses Plus is such a valuable tool and is so enjoyable that we've partnered with them to give our listeners a full month of free video courses when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. They have an incredible amount of topics for you to choose from. In fact, The Great Courses Plus has over 8,000 lectures, and they keep adding more all the time. Just listen to some of their newest courses. Ancient Astronomy, How to Make Stress Work for You, Mystery and Suspense Fiction, and The Science of Extreme Weather, which seems really relevant right now. Man, it's hard to decide even which course to watch next. But right now, Scott and I are watching the lecture series, The Mysterious Etruscans. And why are they mysterious, you ask? Well, one reason is that no one really knows where they came from. There's fierce debate even today amongst ancient historians about the origins of the Etruscans because they were so different from the other peoples of ancient Italy. Greek historians like Herodotus in around 430 BC argue that after a great famine, the Etruscans were immigrants to Italy from Lydia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Then about 400 years later, the historian Dionysius of Halicarnassus argued that the Etruscans were, and I love learning about this word, otochthonous, literally meaning coming out of the ground. He argued this because they didn't use the same language as the Lydians, nor did they worship the same gods or have the same laws or government. So compared to their contemporaries, they really were doing their own thing, and their language especially is considered virtually unique in the world. So they were aliens. And probably. Ancient aliens. Well, no, we can't really say that. That's not a valid claim. But who knows? <laughs> You'll just have to watch the rest of the course to find out. And you can find out yourself during your first free month just by signing up through our special URL, 
thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. You can watch these courses wherever and whenever you want. You can stream them from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. Start on one device and pick up from any other. What are you waiting for? Go get your free month. We know you'll love it. Just sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. My name is Renee. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so he just talked about a lot of really fascinating stuff there. We just wanted to come back briefly and touch on it. One of the things that I think is important to remember is that this thing has been referred to in multiple places as categorically decisive for the war. Yeah, actually, that was a document classification or a project classification they called Krieg Entscheidend, which means war decisive or decisive for war. And I believe it was even a higher classification than their regular atomic research. And it's interesting when you put that together with how fortified Witkowski says the base was at Der Ries. To have all these ravines, it had these concentric circles of ravines, which had troops in them. They were armed to the teeth, and it was nowhere near the front. This was, and you came across this place, you were going to get mowed down. There was like 5,000 troops assigned to guard this at some point at its height. And here's another thing, because of course, everyone's trying to find a more rational explanation for this. And it's like, well, they found an underground base here that they could manufacture arms, you know, conventional weaponry, and they could hide munitions so it didn't get bombed. And this is a remote area, Silesia, which is at the time was part of Germany, I believe now part of Poland. It's a very remote area out in the middle of a nowhere. There's the Wenceslas mine. There is an underground complex called Darisa, which means the giant. So why this big underground kind of thing? Well, of course, yes, you want to keep your uh, munitions and your machinery and your, and your industry out of the reach of bombers and deep underground, but it's an interesting place to do it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Because if you make stuff, you still have to ship it somewhere else. And yeah. that's why they bomb railway lines because they have your manufacturing plants here. You bomb those, you bomb the railway lines. That cuts off the supply of materiel to your troops, which is critical. And here, it seems to be kind of out of the way, all underground, using the natural pits and underground spaces of the uh, Wenceslas mine. But for some top secret reason, so that is one solid thing we can establish here that's obvious to me is that whatever was going on there was really top secret. And it was clearly very important. From the tone of it, you can see that they thought that the outcome of the war for them was possibly going to hinge on the success of whatever was going down there. It's funny you should say the word hinge because that's the other word oh, the, for the flytrap. <laughs> well, the hinge. Yeah, yeah like, like, well, like stone. Yeah, like Stonehenge, because when you look at it, it's a circular ring that's elevated. When you punch up Kecksburg in Google Maps, that image comes up. Yeah. That's how closely tied these two stories are together. So is it a base of a cooling tower? And Vitkowski talks about that, but other people say, well, no, it's not the base of a cooling tower because it had these incredible power lines running up to it, which I'm still not fully clear on whether if we have proof of the existence of the power lines or not, but I feel like I saw it. I don't know if I asked Igor about it, but I feel like I saw him in a documentary where he said, no, these these did go up there. Yeah. Uh, which if it was just a water cooling tower, you would have no need for a power to go to the base of it. There might be a pump, but what's... Uh, Not this kind of power. Exactly. Though. That's yeah. what I'm going to say is that it's a tremendous amount of power. Now you got to realize any pipes or wires, especially anything with copper, that's long been stripped away yeah. for its use. You know, like any building here in America that's derelict. Already house that you know, somebody's gone on vacation, somebody will go in and strip out all the copper wiring. This thing's been gutted, but we can see traces of what was there. 
Yeah. And people have gone through and uh, documented it. It's funny also that you mentioned Kecksburg because when I asked him about Kecksburg, I mean, you heard what he said, yeah. but it was it was interesting to me that when we got to discussing the Black Forest, when we talked about the crash in the Black Forest in 1936, right. which Ventray actually brought to my attention, yes. which I had heard of, but hadn't thought about in quite some time. No, I didn't really look into it either until he, until he mentioned it. Yeah. The interesting thing about that crash was that it happened right outside of Freiburg. All roads lead to Freiburg or well, back to them. Yeah. It's a lovely place, by the way. It's, I, I've been there, like I yes, said before. You have. And it's, there's nothing weird. But let's remind our listeners why Freiburg is significant in terms of the tome of astonishing legends. And the reason is the story we told during the Mothman series about the Freiburg Shrieker, uh, <laughs> which right. saved the men from certain death in the mine, ah, stood yes. in front of it, blocking the door. Right. And let out a loud scream that scared everyone half to death, but then the mine collapsed. And that UFO crash was 1936. Yes. However, the Freiburg Shrieker apparently appeared in 1978. Yeah, again. Um, 40 years, right. 40 plus years later. The later something seems to have happened, especially in the 70s or 80s, you think there's better documentation of it. So maybe you tend to believe that more than something like, well, this happened in 1612. Like, yeah. did people really know what they were looking at? What I'm saying is that people know shapes and they might mistake things. Well, like the planet Venus, yes, sometimes, often that is probably mistaken for a UFO. But there's a lot of people who are... I mistake it for a UFO every time I walk my dog. Well, I always look at it. Yeah, we're always looking up. But you have to know what you're looking at. And so what I'm saying is that there's people who know what they're looking at. Freiburg, though, it's at the edge of the Black Forest, and um, there's a lot of mystery there. But again, oh, lovely little college town, great chocolate cake. Let's get back to the last segment of my interview with Vitkowski. There was an interesting case. A friend of mine living near this valley that I mentioned of Ludwigowice in uh, present uh, southwestern uh, Poland, a friend of mine was gathering, you know, testimonies of former German inhabitants of that area from the time of war or before, and he has came across a letter sent from a German in engineer in this valley to his wife. He was writing in this letter, the war will end soon, but they have to finish some things which are so important that it will be made, uh, you know, will be used. It would transform our civilization. This guy has this engineer. Most of the, of the German technical personnel from this place has disappeared before the end of the war, uh, murdered probably along the, with all these uh, prisoners working there. But nevertheless, it's a view, it's an implication that is still valid. And uh, still, even today in the 21st century, if such a technology would be made uh, usable, you know, it would have changed the entire civilization. Right. So again, we have some other proof of it being decisive for the war, as we already mentioned. The other thing I think that also is interesting here is this device, whatever it is, has the power to change civilization, to change all of mankind. It would change the way we do everything. Right. And this is the part where I'm mean, sure some people are like, oh, okay. Igor has been living with this and working on this for a long time now, for decades. Right. And he has done a lot of research and interviewed a lot of people and dug up a lot of documents. His ideas are based on things that he's uncovered through the course of this investigation, which begs the question, where did it go once it was removed from that area? And the even bigger question, where is it now? I have been contacted by the Germans living in South America 
and uh, I had a sh- short exchange of information with them. I- I'm not sure to what extent I'm entrusted, but it seems to me anyway that this project has been evacuated and uh, secured for the future. It was a very short in- exchange of information, but uh, they were trying to convince me that uh, they are not enemy of mine in spite of the gathering information on me. Mm-hmm. They were preparing for release of this information in the near future because it is a gateway to the future for the entire humanity. They were trying to to make such an impression on me. And they knew already that I'm inclined to see it in, in such a way, in spite that I was not describing such a view in any previous book. They apparently knew me very well. It's still under control. It hasn't been taken over by any winning power such as U.S. or Soviet Union. It's a gateway to the stars. It, it would have enabled us to, to go out to really into space, really, I mean. It obviously also brings about a suspicion that uh, it was something that has been handed over to the Germans. I have no proof for that, but uh, it seems likely because uh, they, in many cases, they were shocked what they saw during the experiments. My impression was such that uh, they didn't understand everything, which is strange because uh, even stranger it is when one takes into account the fact that it was classified as decisive for the war from the very start. It's a very strange story. From my point of view, it's not just a history, because it's something that uh, will play its role in the future as well. It's, uh, you know, the final word uh, hasn't been spoken or written yet, because it's still awaiting a conclusion, so to speak. All right. That caught me off guard. Yeah. The story is not over. Not only is the story not over, but he's in touch with people, or they're in touch with him, I should say. Yeah that apparently are in direct contact with people who are in control of the Nazi bell to this day. They're telling him that they're not connected to the Nazi agenda, that this is about the greater good of mankind. There's some other stuff he said to me that is not present in the show here that indicated that something connected to this is going to be revealed In short order. Something is coming. Something is coming. And here's what I want to say, firstly, about a story like this. We don't know what we're going to get into when we start with a story like this, with a Nazi bell. And I want to be absolutely clear, Forrest and I both do, that we are not glorifying Nazis, the Nazi movement. No, that's not what we're doing here. It's a philosophical argument or maybe a moral and ethical one. Do you use something that could be of great benefit to humanity, even though it has maybe a terrible beginning? Or do you not use it because flat out we can't use anything that came from this? Here we're talking about a device that used slave labor to construct the lab that it was studied under, and maybe some components were built. And everyone who worked on it was killed. Yeah, exactly. Up to to 20,000 sealed inside the mines. Right. At Deris. This is a smart guy. He's a journalist. He's used to following up sources and tracking things down. And as Scott, we're talking about before, the Poles, they did not suffer too well under the German invasion of uh, World War II. So there's no love lost there. Yeah. It's not like he's on board with them. So, of course, not every poll did, but no one's glorifying this. Here's an opportunity to see this story out and see what the potential is. And so that's the most exciting part of it is like, what could happen with this? What could it do? 
Yeah. And what is it capable of? Which brings us to the end of tonight's show. We're going to touch a little bit on the theories that are out there about what the device might actually have been in the broad strokes. And then in part two, we're going to get more specific about it. Right. One of the first ones is that it didn't exist at all. Right. There are other theories that it is a heavy particle accelerator. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about it more uh, because there's some interesting scientific things that we can touch upon. And of course, we asked our own resident chemist, Chris Cogswell, his thoughts. But here's what I'm talking about. A couple of things that were interesting, you know, that one of the things that was described about the Bell in operation was that it, it glowed a deep violet color, which would be like a deep purple. And this thing gave off some light. Now, it made me think of two different things because one, there were concentration camp prisoners that described after the war and during the German reunification and years later started coming forward with stories that they would see these barrel-like objects ascending, rising into the sky that were glowing kind of a pale blue, I believe, and then descending again. And these are not people that were working at the mine that had no chance of escape. These are just people that, you know, were in the neighboring camp. They look at it at night and they could see these things kind of going up and down. The other thing is the story about the Foo Fighters, the Allied fighter pilots from World War II, claiming to be harassed by giant orange glowing orbs that were, to them, definitely seemed to be under intelligent control, non-ballistic motion and all that. And I think they even fired upon them to no effect. So when we talk about these chemicals, and specifically the nuclear reactor bombardment and all that, Chris was talking about beryllium peroxides and maybe some other metals that might have been what we're talking about when we say Lichtmetall or 0525 or this quote-unquote red mercury, it could have been rubidium. And here's a little teaser is that rubidium under the flame tests gives off a purple color and it is used in fireworks sometimes for a purple color. Right. Maybe that's the glow that they were seeing here. It has something to do with rubidium, which again has a very low melting point. So again, there's a lot of different things. And, and ultimately what you can take away and in leading into part two here is that there seems to be real science behind this, at least at the mention of the things going on with this, is that it does seem to have a lot to do with either nuclear reactor capabilities, nuclear weaponization, and also field propulsion. So when we talk about the Bell, for the Germans, it had three purposes. One, to establish energy independence for Germany because they didn't have a ton of uh, natural resources for themselves. And also they're fueling a war effort. So that's goal one. Goal two is some kind of propulsion device for craft. Goal three is some kind of mega weapon. Sure, you can build a nuclear bomb, but if you can rip open and control and manipulate the fabric of space-time, that makes a nuclear bomb look like a firecracker. Yeah. You could bomb people before they even knew you were coming, or they, they knew where they were going. Just imagine the possibilities. So at least with two of those goals, the elements and chemicals and metals described fit that goal. Now, Forrest, didn't you have a story within your own family that might have referred to this? Well, I had no idea that it was possible connection, and it may still not be, but I thought it was interesting. It popped into my head, thinking about World War II and German soldiers and German officers and prisoners being interrogated, and it kind of refreshed this uh, story in my head. And when I was a kid, my grandfather, who served in World War II, was all over the place. I think every theater, actually, of war, but he was in 
Axe France, I believe Axe en Provence during World War II, and for a time was watching some German prisoners. He was saying that there was some German prisoners at this farmhouse that they had uh, captured and they were in a pen. So they're in a farm enclosure, I'm thinking some kind of chicken coop or whatever, that they're keeping these guys. And this is towards the end, end of the war. So a lot of them weren't in great shape. My grandfather's watching over these prisoners and there's one German officer, a lot of them could speak English. And he came up to him and was chatting with him. And my grandfather's, well, we'll talk with anyone, <laughs> you know, especially as we're trying to leave a restaurant. But he would say, uh, he would say that this officer came up to him and said, we're working on this weapon, which will soon win the war for us. Which my grandfather, of course, being the practical guy, said, well, that's not going to matter to you much, buddy, because you're here in this pen. <laughs> like, <laughs> what we take away from that is at the time when he told this and what my grandfather thought was, of course, he's talking about the atom bomb. The Germans are working on the atom bomb. Everybody kind of knew they were working on something like that, possibly. That's why we had to get the Manhattan Project started right away and beat them to it. And we did, by all accounts. But then I got to thinking, especially doing research, like, was he talking about the atom bomb or was he talking about the bell? That is a huge feature of the bell in that it's deadly. It could have the possibility to put out so much weird, deadly radiation that it kills an entire battalion of troops. So I fully believe my grandfather, of course. We all believe that, like, yeah, he was talking about the atom bomb. They're working on that. They're trying to speed that up. And if they can get it, they might win the war. And they might have. We'd mentioned before, there's uh, some that think that they had developed the, the Junkers 390 plane, of which I believe there was only two constructed, and the first to be refueled in flight. Now, this story is laid out in an interview on Jim Harold's show, The Paranormal Podcast. In its episode 91, it was released 30th of June, 2009. The title is Nazis and the Bell. I always give a shout out to Jim because I think he's got a really fascinating lineup of people he's interviewed over the years. Now, that's an older show, so that means it'll be in his archives. You have to pay to get to his archives. Exactly, and I've signed up for the Paranormal Plus Club, so I get uh, access to all these archives. But for me, it's definitely worth it. And if you're into this kind of stuff, definitely worth it for you too. But yes, that is his pay site and his pay wall there. So... Dr. Joseph P. Farrell has written a bunch of books on just the Nazis, Nazi International. This one comes from the SS Brotherhood of the Bell, NASA's Nazis, JFK, and Magic 12, which is the American secret committee to study UFO happenings. He's done a lot of research. He's also one of the people, along with Igor, who's done a tremendous amount of research. Now, he's borrowing from Igor, the same as The Hunt for Zero Point and Nick Cook, who's also a military journalist. That's why Igor was so great to interview, because a lot of this information is coming from him. But if you look at Joseph Farrell's research and what he's done, he claims that the Junkers 390 was a massive six-engine plane designed for maritime reconnaissance, and that it was one of the first, or maybe the first, to be designed to be refueled in flight. And he claims that this thing could fly across the Atlantic to New York or to South America, so those are two interesting possibilities right there, nonstop. But what uh, Farrell claims is that the Luftwaffe had made it as far as 12 miles off the coast of New York and it had snapped a photo of Long Island. Wow. Now, there's no photo, no one can find it, but again, that comes from interrogated Nazi officers and Luftwaffe officers that they had actually done this, but nobody could find the photo. So again, that could be apocryphal, that could just be a, a great World War II story, but not so great when you think about the reason for it and that there's a map apparently that Farrell found with an, with an overlay. It was of a nuclear detonation 
estimated damage report of what would happen if a nuclear bomb was detonated over Manhattan during the war, which imagine the chaos and the death and tragedy alone, and uh, that would put you know the United States, and it could have been a tipping point. So he's saying that it's possibly a reconnaissance mission. He says he found a map where this has been laid out, and you know you can see blast radiation zones and destruction zones. So that didn't happen, thank goodness. We didn't get to that point. But he was saying like, well, if the war had gone on maybe another six months, maybe another year, it could have happened. They were getting very close to being able to, to do that. And people say like, the Germans never detonated a nuclear bomb, so obviously it didn't work for them. But he's also claiming that they had some kind of nuclear type based weapons that they had used on the Eastern Front against the Russians. And the reason you don't hear about it is that Stalin and his uh, Politburo there did not want that out because, again, that would look very bad to them and their own people. And uh, so they kind of maybe hushed that up. But that's what he claims anyway. And the reason that they never used it on the American forces is that they didn't really have a good delivery system. So the V-2 rocket was not big enough or capable enough to fly transatlantic and hit a target in the United States. But they were working on a plane that could drop a bomb, much like the Enola Gay. So there you go. That's where he's coming from. All right. Well, I think that about runs the gamut tonight. <laughs> For me, I'm still shocked by what Vitkowski was saying about the possibility of this thing still being around. We were both expecting that even something like, well, it was on a transatlantic flight and the plane crashed. It's in the ocean. Yeah. If it was there, which is a mysterious ending to it all. There's two main hypotheses of where this thing ended up. One, North America somewhere, along with Operation Paperclip, the U.S. military absconded with this thing and has been experimenting with it ever since. And, and misfired hence, it into Kecksburg. <laughs> yeah, hence <laughs> Kecksburg ends up in Pennsylvania right. in the woods and they go collect it again. Or it went to South America, Argentina, Brazil, someplace down there where they had squirreled it away to an area that was sympathetic, shall we say. So maybe Giselle Bunchen's working on it. Who knows? You know, here's the wacky one that I just thought of now. Maybe it's in Antarctica because, of course, that's another big Nazi base lore. They've got a secret base down there. They got to it with the, their submarines. Who knows? But I, I'd like to throw that one in there because it's uh, such part of popular lore now. Well, it's interesting to me, and I guess the other thing is interesting is that Igor was not letting go of the fact that he seems to believe that it is still around and that these people who are contacting him are currently in control of it and that there's a lot more to it than what he's been able to tell us. And if you don't believe that, just listen to this quote. This futuristic aspect of this technology is pretty much alive, I may assure you. It's ongoing and it's getting stranger. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We'll be back in one week with part two of our series on the Nazi Bell. We'd like to thank Squarespace, Blue Apron, ZipRecruiter, and The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring us. Please remember that supporting our sponsors helps support the show. And our friend Kevin Diaz has gotten older. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hey, Scott. Hey, Forrest. I'm Emily Hedrick. Hi, I'm Christian Sputter. I am Renee Bassick. And, and I, I get permission to astonishing legend to use my voice however they see fit. Throw it back to them. And if you can't tell with a thick accent, I'm from Texas.
Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>